We're in John chapter 1. This morning I'm actually going to cover a few verses for a change instead of one or two. Eventually we're going to get out of this chapter. But I'm not necessarily in a hurry. We've got, there's, this is a big chapter. How's that? 51 verses. So I'm going to begin in verse 35 of John chapter 1 and read through to verse 42 and then look at some things that are written for us in that particular passage. I'm going to read to you from the New American Standard uh, 2020. It says in verse 35, again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked and he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which is, of course, the second time he had said that about Jesus. And the two disciples heard him speak, that is, John the Baptist, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see, or come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, and it was about the tenth hour, about four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, or the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So, Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would minister to us, fill us with your spirit, that we might receive from you, that we might gain greater understanding of of your ways. How majestic, as we sang are your whispers and how often it is that your ways are beyond our finding out as the prophet Isaiah said that they're higher than our ways and so Lord we pray as the psalmist prayed that you would teach us your ways O Lord that we might walk in your truth we ask these things in Jesus name and all God's people said amen In studying the Bible, I think not only do we need to pay attention to what is written, but I think it helps us, too, to pay attention to the style in which it is written or the flow of the message and how uh, the message is coming across uh, to us. And I I think when we study the Gospels, particularly when we look at the Gospel of John, we want to go to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They're known as the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, They're very similar, although there are some variations in the synoptics as well. But we want to go fill in the gaps um, by going to the synoptic gospels because there's some gaps here this morning. Um, Larry, would you do me a favor and maybe turn that light on, please, the one right there. I know Larry's like, gosh, you make me get up. Anyway, now I've got to edit this part. Um, Thank you. That might be easier for the guys in the back, huh? Anyway, um, 
And, and so I think at times it's helpful to fill in the gaps, but I think also at times it's very important to ask, why did John not fill in the gaps? To me, if I'm studying the book of John, to me, that's a, to me, that's a more important question. Why does John make these declarations and then does not explain them? I find that to be fascinating. I'm going to get into that later on. But, but what I, 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 you know, I'm convinced that, that John is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is inspired scripture. I believe it was the last gospel that was written, written toward the end of John's life. Uh, but what's interesting about this, as I started thinking through this, is that this, this idea of having all 66 books together uh, was not what the early church had. They may have had some fragments. They may have had different collections of some of the different uh, Hebrew scriptures. They may have had some of Paul's writings. That, remember, the printing press had not even been invented yet. And so they didn't carry God's word around like this. They had these big scrolls. So imagine that you'd have to get a cart if you, know, if you wanted to have all 66 uh, uh, books of the Bible with you. And so it could have been to the original readers. I said could have been. They might not have known much about Matthew, Mark, or Luke's writing. And so you have to look at this writing of John as something that really is written for the believer both in the first century and in the 21st century with every intention that it can stand alone without needing to go to other uh, gospel accounts to fill in some of the gaps. Now, it's helpful at times to go to some of the other gospel accounts and to fill in some of the gaps. But as, I, as I'm reading this, and, I'm, and I, was, I was tempted. I'm tempted to go to Matthew 16 this morning. I'm not going to. You can do that on your own. Because my question is, what was the intention of the Holy Spirit in writing this, inspiring this, in the way in which John wrote it? And, and as I more I thought about it, no no doubt the the early church uh, understood and understood well that they referred to John's gospel as the spiritual gospel of the four. That it, it's it's a gospel that's not only intended to speak to our intellect, but it's a gospel that's intended to speak to our souls, our spirit and to speak to the very inward parts of who we are, and to seek out, because of the text, to seek out the possible invitations that the Holy Spirit may be leading you into to reveal more of who he is. So this fascinates me as I think through this. John is telling a story without really filling in the gaps. So some of this he is leaving to our imagination. He's leaving 
it to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we see on the next day, after we've looked at the previous passage, where John testifies that Jesus is the Son of God, the unique one of God. John sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. We've talked about this idea of the Lamb of God a couple of times already, and I think it can refer to a lot of different things. I even thought of Abel's sacrifice in the book of Genesis when Abel sacrificed the Lamb. The sacrifice that was offered for each and every family after the, the plagues of judgment came upon Egypt, known as the Passover. Jesus died during the time of Passover, actually on Passover. And Jesus was that sacrificial lamb. It's important to notice that in the scriptures that the Passover lamb was not a sacrificial lamb, but by the time Jesus uh, was on the scene, the, the Passover lamb was sacrificed where? In the temple. Therefore, it was sacrificed by the priest and it became a sacrificial lamb. And so Jesus really becomes our Passover lamb uh, as, as he is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And it's interesting that the two disciples hear this. Now, according to the text, that's all that is written that they heard. Did they hear anything else? We don't know. Maybe everything else that they did hear, if in fact they heard something, I'm speculating, maybe it was all just filler. We don't know. What prompted them to leave John the Baptist and to start following Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Perhaps that was enough. Perhaps they understood that the Lamb was also the Messiah. We read a little bit later in this text that what? Andrew goes to his brother, Simon Peter, and says to him, we have found whom? The Messiah otherwise known as the Christ, the Mashiach in, in Hebrew, the one who takes away the sin of the world. No doubt, it's not recorded. I feel pretty firm on this one. No doubt it was the Holy Spirit speaking to their hearts and bearing witness that this is the one of whom John spoke about which we have already read earlier in this particular passage in, in, in chapter 1. And so they go to Jesus, and Jesus sees them following him. There's no, there hasn't been an introduction here yet. At least it's not recorded. Jesus turns around, and he sees them following him, and he says, what are you seeking? Do you realize how important of a question that that is? What are you seeking? Why do you come to church? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you pray? Why do you give? We'll, we'll take it even a step further, lower, lower. Why do you listen to Christian radio? 
course, I could say, why should you? But anyway, um, are you not seeking the things of the Spirit? What are you seeking? It, and I, it, there was obviously some type of a hunger in their hearts that moved them from following. It really, it really moved them from following John the Baptist in the first place, who's out there wearing camel's hair clothing. He's wearing the clothing of a prophet. He's on, consisting of a diet of, of locusts and honey. Now, remember, he's a Nazarite, so that means what? He's, never, he's, he's got probably some humongous dreads on him, right? I'm speculating that, but no doubt he had really long hair. And he's out there preaching and screaming, yelling, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the Spirit is using those things to prick the hearts of these two followers of John who immediately leave John and they follow Jesus. What are you seeking? I think what they were seeking, bless you, I think what we are seeking, I think what we are always seeking, Christian and non-Christian alike, we are seeking to be reconciled with God. We are seeking that reconciliation. We are seeking to be in a place that we have peace, bless you again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul talked about a few times in his letters. We're seeking to be at a place that we have a sense of security in that which Jesus Christ has done for us. And when we sin, the, the strange thing about sin for a Christian, we, when we sin, I, we, we, I don't think we break the relationship as much as we break the fellowship, the interaction. The relationship is still there. He is still our father. We are still his children. But the, 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 the communion, the closeness, the fellowship the, the, is no longer there. We talked about Genesis um, last Wednesday night. Adam and Eve eat the fruit what, and what happens? Two things happen. Well, three things. A lot of things happen. First, they realized they were naked, so they went and put fig leaves for clothing, which probably didn't work well. Um, second thing that happens is that God shows up. And because God shows up, what do they do? They hide because the fellowship had been broken. Now, the whole Genesis account to me is fascinating because God lovingly restores them. There's no real repentance recorded in that chapter, if you've ever read it. I'll just throw that out for you, let you look it over later. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. And the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. So, you know, it... it, That's what goes on. And God kills an innocent animal to clothe his people. I think that's what we're seeking. Reconciliation. The sense of knowing that, that we are 
not just okay, but we're in a place of being being forgiven, being purified by, by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Andrew, one of the two. Now, it is believed by a lot of the early fathers that one of the, the other, there's two disciples of John who follow Jesus here, right? The, a lot of the early fathers believe that the second disciple was John who wrote the gospel. I'll just throw that out there for free. It has really not a whole lot with what I'm talking about this morning, but that's just just there for you. And, and but before I get into what Andrew uh, did, Jesus turns to them and says, what are you seeking? And, he's, and, and, and they say to him, Rabbi. Rabbi, which means teacher. They want to know where he is, where he is staying. Now, at first, I thought that was really a lame question. It's like, of all the questions that you could ask the God in the universe when he's asking you what you're seeking, you just want to know where he's spending the night? Where are you staying? What hotel are you at? I mean, you could have even come up with, can God make a rock that he can't pick up? Even, you know, that would have been better. than. And I just thought that was like, wow, you've got to be kidding me. But the more I gave it thought, do you understand the intimacy in that question? The desire for more closeness? The desire for more communion? Where you're staying because we, we, want it, we want to come there. They did go with him. They stayed till at least the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This desire for fellowship that is, is, is innate in each and every one of us. And the, the, the strange thing about it is, is because of the, um, because of the, I, I think, the spiritual warfare that all of us as Christians encounter, whether we even realize it or not, uh, where, where the demons attempt to disrupt our fellowship with God, that, that desire that we have for fellowship with God, we attempt to try to fill it with so many different things. And even decent, good things. And sometimes the, be- the, 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 the worst enemy or the strongest enemy of the best is the good. So we do good things, but we don't sit at the feet of the master. We don't sit in communion with him. We don't sit in fellowship with him. We don't want to know where he is dwelling. Now think about that. Think about your prayer. Well, yeah, think about your prayer life. Just don't think about somebody else's right now, okay? How many of your prayers are, God, do this, God, do that, God, do this, God, do that, and when you get done doing this, would you please do that too? Is there anything wrong with that? No. You have not because you have not, or you ask amiss that you may consume on your own lust. James tells us that. You have not because you ask not. I'm just going to leave it there, right? But how much of your prayer life is, goes beyond asking God for him to do things for you? How much of your prayer life goes into the realm of praise, into the realm of worship, 
And that's why I think it's so, it's so good, really, to pray the Psalms. Because they're incredible worship. They're incredible worship compositions, and they're biblical, right? What an understatement. And just to simply pray the Psalms back to God. Pray his word back to him. Spend time with him. There's something that, that what I find, especially when I really make that a, a, a habit in my life and I have really plowed that into my life and really spent days and weeks and even months doing that, that it changes me in a way that I really can't describe. But what an important question it is. Where are you staying? Can I come and abide with you? It really it even makes me think of Revelation chapter, chapter 3 where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and I will commune. I will dine with them and he with me. It's the sense of intimacy that Jesus is longing to come into our hearts. And by the way, that was written to a church, not to unbelievers. And here, it's flipped around 180 degrees. Of course, Jesus prompted it when he said, what are you seeking? And they said, where are you are staying? We're asked the question, where are you staying? And so I even had in my notes, and I erased it, really? Yeah. They were seeking worship. They're, excuse me. They were seeking to worship the king of kings. They were seeking to worship the Messiah. And, and, after, and after spending time with him, after spending time with him, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, he goes out and he finds Simon. And he says to him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. there's a huge pattern here. I don't know if you see it or not. Somebody will argue with me on this one, but that's okay. I think there's worship before work. I think there's worship. Spending time with God. Because that fills you in such a way that nothing else can. I think there's worship before work. Before we do the work of God, we do the worship of God. Now, you can make a case, and I would agree with you, because I've already anticipated some of the arguments, all right? That part of work is worship, is it not? Can be. Okay, I was going to say maybe it was just my idea. I don't know. I think it is. But I think the pattern here is, in, is incredible because, because in spending time with God, and I'm going to put ideas in, in Andrew's mind, I'm speculating here, of course, is, is that as Andrew was sitting there with Jesus, uh, with his love that he had for his brother Simon, and, and perhaps they had had discussions about their, hoping that the Messiah would come, or maybe even Simon had said, why are you going out in the desert and following that long-haired hippie with camel's hair clothing around? And eating honey and locusts. Maybe he had challenged him on his faith. 
But no doubt Andrew was touched in such a way that he wanted to give Simon the opportunity to have the same experience of worshiping Jesus that he had had himself. You know what's interesting about the three of them together? Jesus and maybe John and Andrew. It's not recorded. It's not recorded. We don't know what they talked about. We don't know what they did. But just to be able to meet with Jesus in his home. Which there's really, there's no, there's, there's no greater intimate place to meet with someone than to go to their home. You go to their home, and, and their home speaks volumes of who they are, doesn't it? It does. And for Jesus to have that sense of hospitality, to bring them in, to allow them to be with him, for him to say, well, come, come and you'll see. I love that, that statement because I think there are certain things in the realm of our spiritual lives that we cannot necessarily explain to others. They have to be able to partake of them themselves. And they have to experience them themselves. I'm almost starting to sound like a good Pentecostal, aren't I? But I, 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 think, I think the realm of the Spirit is, is something that... And, and some people are, are just completely afraid of it. But to allow the Spirit to do these, these things in our, in, 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 in our lives, to minister to us, things that are done decently and in order according to the Scriptures. It's more than just an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. The word of God that goes into our minds also needs to penetrate into our hearts. And it's a calling to come into his house. It's a calling to come into his presence. It's a calling to commune with him. So Andrew goes and gets Simon. And he brings him to Jesus. According to what we have written here, all he said to Simon is, we have found the Messiah. Did they argue on the way? We don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Was Simon thinking in the back of his mind, why am I doing this? Who knows? Again, look at what's written. And this tells me Andrew simply said to Simon, we found the Messiah. And then got out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do the work. Instead of trying to come up with all this apologetic stuff. I'm kind of on the fence about apologetics, but I, I think we have to really give room for the Spirit of God to do that work. 
and let him speak to the spirit of humanity, to these people that we know that we desire to see them come into the same type of fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ that we ourselves have. And he brings them to Jesus. And I, what Jesus does here fascinates me. I probably spent maybe too much, well, I don't know if I spent too much time. Jesus just looks at Simon. He says, you are Simon, the son of John, or Jonah. Take your pick. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. You will be called Cephas, translated Peter. Cephas is Aramaic. It's an Aramaic name. Um, What's interesting about this, there's a lot of interesting about the name of Simon, also known as Simon Peter. If you read in the Gospels, all four of them, he will be referred to as Peter, Simon, or often as Simon Peter. When the Gospel writers are telling a story about him, Jesus only calls him Peter one time in the Gospels. At the end of John's Gospel, he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah or son of John, again. That's how this Gospel ends. Is Jesus restoring Peter after Peter had denied Christ three times? He's calling him Simon again. He only calls him Peter in the gospel in Luke twenty two thirty four when he says, I tell you, Peter, when the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. Or when the rooster crows, you would have denied me three times. I looked it up this morning. I might have miscounted or I might have misread. But that's, that's the only one I could find where Jesus actually refers to him as Peter. Peter means what? It means the rock. So he says to him, you will be Cephas, or in a Galilean, Aramaic dialect, it's actually Kepha, spelled with a Q or a K, take your pick, with no S on the end. You will be Kepha, which means Peter, which means the rock. But then John never goes there in the rest of his gospel. John will refer to him as Simon or Simon Peter or Peter. Jesus calls him Simon. So why did he do this? What's going on? We don't even have it explained to us what in the world was Jesus thinking or why he made this this, uh, distinction with Peter. Not, Not everybody else got a name change. It fascinates me. Is it possible, and I'm going to speculate on this one too, is it possible that Jesus is seeing not necessarily Peter, Simon, but he's seeing that which the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, that which Jesus will do in the life of Peter, and he's seeing what will happen later on? 
Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says all drank of the same spiritual drink. 10-4. Uh, uh, For they drank of that spiritual rock and followed them, and that rock was whom? Christ. Is Jesus prophesying in a very, uh, maybe a non-direct way of seeing that which will happen in the life of Peter by calling him the rock? Seeing that which the Messiah will do in the life and the heart of Peter when he is converted? But then at the end of this book, he calls him Simon again? It's kind of a mystery to me. Now, I can take you to Matthew 16 and talk about upon this rock, I will build my church, and I'm not going to. You can look at that later. How's that? John kind of leaves us in the mystery here. Maybe he answers it at the end of the book in John 21, in the restoration of Peter when the gospel ends. But he, I feel like he, John's leaving us hanging. I really do. I feel like God, John's leaving us hanging. So, so how do I explain this? Well, I can just close in prayer, and we'll maybe, maybe I'll come up with something between now and next week. I don't know. Let's turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. One of my favorite concepts about God. One of my favorite concepts about God that I like the least. How's that? Because it's difficult. Uh, chapter 4, somewhere around verse 16. We just came out of Romans. So what's Romans 4 about? Or who is Romans 4 about? About Abraham. It, it, and I'm going to back up, just grab a little context. I'm going to pull out a few verses. It tells us in verse 3 of chapter 4 of Romans that Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so right from the get-go in this particular chapter, it's talking about believing in God. It's talking about exercising faith. And I'm going to back up to 13. It says, For the promise that he would be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to a seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise, the promise, that's important, the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He's talking to the church here, okay? As it is written, verse 17, I made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, that is God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, 
who contrary to hope, in hope, believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith. This is talking about Abraham. He's not weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that, he, that what he had promised, he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him as righteousness. Back to verse 17 again. God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they, what? As though they did. That fascinates me. You remember the story. Abraham, uh, God appears to Abraham This was not the first time that God appeared to Abraham, but God appears to him and says that you're going to be the father of many nations. Now, what's the the problem with that promise in the life of Abraham at that time? He he has no children. And Sarah, his wife, is barren. And you can't be the father of many nations when you can't even foster one child. And, of course, they understood, he understood the promise to be a physical promise, which it was. But as we just read here, if you, if you listen or read it carefully, it's also a spiritual promise. It refers to Abraham as the father of us all. Remember I said because he's writing to the church. So here's Abraham. He's about 100 years old. He's an old guy. It doesn't go into details, and I'm not going to go into details. His wife cannot conceive. It says his body is dead. What does that mean? You can use your imagination. How's that? For whatever reason. And God says you're going to be the father of many nations. And Abraham says, I'm paraphrasing, God, I don't know how you're going to make this work. But if you say it's true, I'll believe you. If you say it's true, I will believe you. If you have planted the vision, I will believe you. If you have given me something, if you have given me something in the realm of a new name and yet I do not see it fulfilled and I do not see how in the world it can be fulfilled, but you've given it to me, I'm going to believe you. Because God, gosh, I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. Who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did contrary to hope he's an old man his wife can't have kids contrary to hope in hope believed one of the three virtues faith hope love hope means god has promised 
I don't see it happening. God has promised. I don't see it happening. But I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to rest in it. I'm not going to be like Sarah who tried to make it happen. Right? With the concubine. And you end up with Ishmael. But I'm going to hope. I'm going to hold out hope. Even though it makes absolutely no sense from my present vantage point. Without turning there because of time, Gideon experienced the same thing. Judges chapter 6. Gideon is in the threshing, is on the, he's, he's inside of the wine press, excuse me, he's inside of the wine press, which is an enclosed area trying to thresh his wheat. Now, how do you thresh wheat? You'd get up on an area that would be flat, usually up high where the wind would blow, and you would, you would thresh the wheat, and you would cast it up in the area, and all the chaff would be carried away in the wind, and all the wheat would drop down to, to, the, to the ground because it, it's heavier. But because of the Philistines, he's in hiding. He's in hiding because he doesn't want his wheat taken. He's actually being probably kind of smart. But he's no doubt scared. They are people who are oppressed. And the angel of the Lord appears to him and says to him, calls him what? A mighty man of valor. And you have to think that Gideon might have turned around and thought he was talking to someone else. Because he's hiding out on the wine press, which is down low, instead of up high where he should be, should be threshing his wheat. But God likes to call those things that do not exist as if they did. Why? Because it's by his power that those things do come to pass. They come to pass. Has God planted something in your heart? Maybe it's been years. Years. God has truly planted that in your heart, it will come to pass. He calls those things that don't exist as if they do. He calls Simon, and if you've read the Gospels, you know the story of Simon Peter. He was he, he, incredibly impetuous. Simon Peter, or Satan has asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you. Book of Luke. Simon had probably some of the best moments of all the 12 disciples, but he also had some of the worst ones. Except for Judas. We won't go there, right? But he had some of the worst ones. He had foot and mouth disease. He was anything but the rock. But he was the only one who walked on water. And that fascinates me. Jesus looks at him and calls him the rock because he saw in Simon Peter what Simon Peter would become 
by the power of God's Holy Spirit. When God would open the right doors at the right time in the right places with the right circumstances with the right people. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's planting the vision. John doesn't say that. But as I look at the gaps that John purposely left in his writing, I'm recognizing more and more as I read this gospel over and over again that those gaps are invitations for me to say, what do you have for me here, Lord? See, read this thing. Read, don't read this just as a, as a head knowledge. Read it spiritually. Because we don't always know what God is doing, do we? I'm so glad God knows what he's doing because there are most of the time I have no idea what he's doing. And, and, and so I pray. I'm like, okay, I'm going to pray. I'm, I'm going to believe. I'm going to trust. Still don't know what you're doing. Paul understood this when he told the Ephesians that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than whatever we could ask or think. See, we don't, we rarely, I, I don't know if rarely is even a, the best word. I don't know if we ever, but I'll just go back to rarely, let's play it safe. We really get the full plan of God when he initially calls us into something. And I'm becoming more and more suspicious when I run across people who believe they do have that plan. I turned down what might have been a really good job as a worship leader probably 25, 26 years ago or even longer because the guy who I went and met, he had the plan. He had the full plan. I'm thinking there's no room, there's no room for me here. He's, he's got it all figured out. He said God downloaded it to him like a fax machine on his way back from the airport one night. Okay. But I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't resonate with that. Because often it is that God leads me one little step at a time. And you know what? I don't like it. Do you like it? When you feel like you're walking in the dark? Of course not. But he's calling those things that are not as if they are. And in doing so, he causes, calls us to walk in the hope, even a hope that is against all logical hope that we might be able to muster. He's called us to apprehend his promises by hope, those things that he has breathed into your heart by hope. And in hope, we apprehend them by faith, and by faith we do so by loving the Lord and trusting these things to him. Amen.